Well, good morning again. Uh, if you're new or a visitor here and uh, we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dave and I'm our lead pastor here. You know, one of my fond memories of, uh, of summers um, was going on summer vacation. I know some of you are planning for whatever, um, you know, kind of trips you're going to be doing. But one of, the, one of the things, if you are a pet owner, um, you have to think about your preparations for, like, what happens when we, when we leave? What are we going to do with the pet? And um, we did have dogs when I was a young kid and lived on a farm, but we had cats later on. And my, I loved my dad's preparation for leaving our cat. It was taking a huge bowl, like an like a, um, ice cream pail, a four liter, just filling it up and walking away, <laughs> leaving the cat outside and be like, well, I'm sure he'll be here when we get back. And, uh, and he always was. Um, preparations for leaving. We're very familiar with Christmas and Easter in the Christian calendar. Uh, but for those of us who maybe don't come from like a high church tradition, uh, like myself, I grew up in a Baptist kind of setting like this one, we, we don't always follow the church calendar. And Ascension Day might not even be on our radar. But this week, this day, in the Christian calendar across the world is Ascension Day. Ascension meaning the day where Jesus said, uh, I'm going back to be with my Father. Send the Holy Spirit to fill you and guide you. I'm leaving now. And the rest of our chapter, what we're going to see in chapter 16 Today, this is the hinge chapter in the whole of the narrative so far. This is where Jesus then begins to prepare, fortunately, unlike my dad, not just dumping a bunch of cat food for us and saying, fend for yourself. He begins to prepare his first disciples and us to live with him no longer physically present. As we await the reality of Jesus' return and the bringing of his kingdom in its full and final form, we live in this tension. The kingdom has come, but it's still to come. What do we do in the middle? That's the space we live in right now, and this text prepares us to live in it well. Let's pray as we begin. Merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've sung these songs this morning preparing us to meet you, and now we want to open ourselves to these scriptures, what you have inspired to be written for, for us to know you and to be changed and challenged. So speak to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be reading all of Matthew 16, and I'm going to be doing it in chunks this morning. So let's start. If you've got your Bibles, open to chapter 16 and starting at verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees. That's a shift in our whole storyline so far, and I'll show you why in a minute. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you'll say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation look for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Now, Jesus has been doing all kinds of signs. These are powerful deeds to accompany his powerful words. They signal that God's kingdom has, in his own being, actually come. He's pointing us to what one day will be the ultimate reality for everyone who trusts in him, the healings, 
the raising people from the dead. This all signals the coming of the kingdom. And yet this group shows up to test Jesus. Show us a sign from heaven. Prove yourself now. And you know what? Jesus knows they are not honest inquirers. They are, as we might say, hell-bent on seeing the end of Jesus. Kind of like an established political party, when they see a grassroots movement sort of taking momentum and gaining a following, man, there's this rush to discredit and quell the movement. They're acting like they have the ones who have authority to judge Jesus' work. They treat him like he's somehow got to prove himself now. But Jesus, he's not a clown. He's not someone's hired entertainment. The sign of Jonah, he said, that's what I'll give you. We've already read about that, actually, in Matthew chapter 12. He says there, hey, like Jonah, he was in the belly of the whale for three days, but he didn't stay there. Guess what? I'll be in the heart of the earth for three days, but I'm not staying there either. So Jesus points to the resurrection. He says, you want a miracle? Look for that miracle. And when you see it, you'll know I'm king and Lord over all. That's the sign of Jonah. But here's what we have to know. Jesus has been dealing with Pharisees really since the beginning of his ministry, more or less. But then there's the Sadducees that show up. These are the officials from Jerusalem. These guys have significant clout. Here's how one scholar says it. He says, offend the Pharisees. Man, they'll keep coming at you with questions, trying to entrap you. Offend the Sadducees, and your days are numbered. And Jesus knew that. He knew that once the Sadducees were on the scene, he was going to be heading toward his death. And so now the question is, Are the disciples ready for that? See, Jesus is not only preparing for his death and resurrection, he's preparing for Ascension Day. Uh, In Luke 9.51, the hinge of that whole gospel is this. It says, uh, and Jesus, what does it say? At that time, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, not just to the cross, to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus, this is his plan. He's going back to the Father to reign as king over all. Are his disciples ready? And the big question for us this morning, too, is are we ready to follow Jesus in the lack of his physical presence? For one, the disciples and we need to learn to trust in God in a way Uh, for our provision. Listen to what happens next. Verse five, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. They should have brought it along. They have, we have responsibility to like sort out our jobs and our bread, right? They should have brought the bread along. They didn't. They forgot it. Jesus says to them, be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? Or how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I'm not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. He's not telling them to guard against yeast used in bread, but against the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's almost funny. Um, Jesus begins to offer this warning, 
and they start talking about bread. Shoot, oh man, did we bring the bread? Oh man, what are we going to eat? I imagine Jesus in this deep sigh. Maybe a face palm at this point. And then I look at my own life and I realize that I'm actually not that unlike them. Even now, after this many years of following Jesus and seeing him provide for me. No, they don't need to worry because God will provide for them. And I don't need to worry in that way. And neither do you. How many basketfuls did you pick up? Oh, right. No, I don't have to worry about bread. Jesus says what you do have to be on guard for is the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they finally get it. They see it's the teachings of these groups. That's what he's talking about. Now, we need to understand something about yeast or what we might call leaven uh, from the Old Testament context. The Israelites were to remove all the yeast from their homes when they were preparing for Passover to celebrate God's deliverance of them from Egypt. Why were they getting rid of the yeast? One of the things is that it was uh, a sign of purity. Uh, to, To not have yeast in your house or in your bread, it was to say this is just totally pure in that sense. Uh... But why then would you use yeast in the first place if it wasn't pure in that sense? Of course, it's to make bread more palatable. It's easier to eat. It's got air in it now. Here's what N.T. Wright, biblical scholar, writes about this. He says, warning against the leaven of someone's teaching meant warning against ways in which the true message of God's kingdom could be corrupted, diluted, or as we say in reference to drink rather than food, watered down. Jesus is going to be leaving his disciples to carry on the mission without his physical presence. They need to be prepared to not corrupt, dilute, or water down this message of the kingdom. And that warning is still very true for us today. Now, often people in our culture equate um, Pharisee with people who are really concerned about the rules, right? Yeah, in some sense, that's true. But simply making it that easy can be misleading as well. See, the Pharisees, they do care a lot about a certain type of rules. But they also thought that they were being faithful to a relationship with God. So, so that it, it, it kind of goes like this in Christian circles. Pharisees are into rules. I'm into relationship. Okay, but can I point something out for a moment? In the actual texts of Matthew's gospel up to this point, Uh, Jesus isn't exactly saying to the Pharisees, boy, you're too into the rules. He says to them this, you aren't interested in what God says, but simply your own structures, your own traditions. Um, Think about, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this phrase several times in chapter 5. He says, you have heard it said. What's he referring to? The teaching of the Pharisees. You've heard it said like this. But I tell you. See, he, he applies that to anger, to lust, to divorce, to oaths. In each case, he's addressing how the Pharisees have interpreted the scriptures in a way that's looking for loopholes, watering down, making it easy, more palatable. They're reinterpreting God's ways to suit their own way of life. The issue for the Pharisees, at least one of them, that Jesus is dealing with is that they're diluting what God has said, creating their own sense of right from wrong 
and then basing their self-worth and their sense of self-righteousness off of their performance of their self-made approach to God. So for Jesus, the issue of the Pharisees isn't, oh, you guys are too serious about the rules. It is, you guys are not serious enough about God, about the kind of relationship that God is actually wanting with you. You talk as though you know and care about the scriptures, but you actually don't. They're focused on their outward, but they don't care what God's intention for us is. We see that particularly come out in Matthew 23. So here's just what I'm trying to show now. Jesus teaches very clearly about the kingdom. He says what living that out in the power of the Holy Spirit will look like, how it delights and honors God. Said differently, the issue isn't simply rules versus relationship. It's better than that. The issue is whose instruction am I following? Which relationship am I committed to? A relationship with a system that I've created, which essentially never challenges and changes me, certainly won't save me. Or is it a relationship with the one true living God, who when I tap into really following him, following Jesus, will change and challenge me every day? The question is, which is it for me? I asked myself that question this week. And you need to ask, which is it for you? So Jesus is concerned that his followers, his first ones and us today, that we don't fall into a trap of of squeezing out the wild, wonderful adventure of life with the living God. Following Jesus and his way of teaching, that's part of this relationship. And we do it. We love Jesus. We obey Jesus. Not to earn salvation, not at all. We do it out of a gratefulness and the joy of lining ourselves up with the one who saves us when we trust him. But then this begs the question, who is Jesus that we should follow him like that? The issue, the real issue comes up next. Look at verse 13 and following. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And that is still the most significant question you will ever have to answer. When Jesus asks you, who do you say I am? Your whole life will shift, shift, pardon me, based on how you answer that question. Either he is God's promised saving king, the hinge point of all history, or he's not. There's no room for he's pretty neat and leaving it at that. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, Peter means rock, by the way. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, that is the realm of the dead, death itself will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Peter gets it. Jesus says it's not because of his own uh, intellect, but this is something God the Father has revealed to him. But unlike the Pharisees, 
Peter is receptive to hearing from God. But how do we understand this promise to Peter now? Um, Look at it again. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, The classic Roman Catholic answer to that question is that Peter is the first pope, and that this role will then be filled by every successive pope. So it's called apostolic succession, that that there'll be one person who always stays in that place that Peter is in. The classic reformed answer says something like this. No, it's not really about Peter being the rock. It's Peter's confession that Jesus is Messiah. That, that confession, is the rock. I'm not sure either answer is actually that accurate. Let me show you why. First, there's nothing here or actually anywhere else in the New Testament to to suggest that Peter's role gets filled in by someone else. We just don't see that. Also, as we read the rest of the New Testament, Peter isn't treated above others, and he sees himself as one among many elders and leaders of the church, not above them. But second, the classic Reformed answer doesn't take seriously that Jesus actually says this to Peter. Like, as a person, the person Peter heard these words from Jesus. So it's not only his confession, he addresses it to this guy. So what does that mean then? Well, we see in the rest of the story, especially in the book of Acts, that Peter has this really key role, a unique role actually, in bearing witness to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He was there for every key moment in Jesus' ministry. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who stands up and begins to preach to the crowd the keys that he has. This seems to be at least in part that he has this key role of establishing the new community, the church, based on his preaching and his own experience of seeing Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He doesn't stand above the others, but he has a unique role that Jesus has given him. The irony, of course, is what we see next. In the rest of the gospel, Peter tries to use these keys, but he's fumbling them. He's got this leadership role, but he keeps messing it up uh, because he really doesn't get it yet. And so Jesus shows him why. Uh, And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, two really key take-home points for us at this point. Jesus takes his church, his community, with utter seriousness. He loves it with an undying love. It's become popular in in recent years for people to say something like this, I love Jesus, but not so much the church. And I can understand that people have had bad experiences in faith communities, perhaps even horrible ones. Of course, the mistreatment of people anywhere, uh, that needs to be dealt with and accounted for. And there are communities of faith who have failed to be faithful to Jesus in doing that, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that the community of faith that Jesus has established, the church that he promised to build, isn't of infinite value. Jesus, after all, loved his church enough to die for her. So the church is to be a community of belonging for everyone to come and experience new life through Christ. The point that we need to see is just this. Jesus loves his church. He is committed to his people. 
But that begs the question, then, how can we love Jesus and not love what Jesus loves? I heard a preacher talk about it in this term. He said, picture yourself at a wedding. And um, imagine the, bra- uh, the, the groom, pardon me, he comes into the church and he, he comes up and stands at the front and he's excited. And people in the audience begin to murmur and, and you hear them, they're saying things like, we love the groom. The groom is the best. This guy, oh, this, what a great day. What a great day. Look at him up there. And then the groom is standing in anticipation. The doors open, his bride comes in and the groom is beaming. He loves his bride. But as she begins to walk down the aisle, another sort of murmur happens. That bride, what a hag. We we hate the bride. And they begin throwing vegetables at her. And could you imagine the sense of this groom who loves his bride coming in and and the community around is just throwing these insults. The language here of Jesus is, I will build my church. Throughout the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. Jesus, the groom. For whatever flaws the church has, she belongs to Jesus. She is beloved of Jesus. And here Jesus promises to build and sustain his beloved church. And so if you belong to Jesus, you are a part of his people, his community. And the church, the church is God's plan A for the world. And there is no plan B. There's there's nothing else that God has said, okay, well, except for the church, let's do this instead. God has, Jesus has never given up on his church. There's no other option. So the question comes to us in this way. For all the flaws and foibles that any and every church community has to some extent, how am I contributing to loving this community? That's our question. See, Peter, he'll go on, this Peter, the one that Jesus talks about here, he'll go on to write in a letter And he says this, to a group of churches and to us today, love one another deeply from the heart. So is that your posture to the Christian community today? To those seated around you? I often see this worked out in beautiful ways in our community. I really do. And we're going to keep making this love for each other as God's bride a priority, right? But it's not always easy. Personal agendas get in the way. Selfishness creeps into every sort of community, including the church. So the call to love is truly costly. It means actively seeking the best for others, even if that means stepping back myself. So maybe the question for you goes like this. Is there someone I haven't seen for a while? I just need to call them. They're they're a part of the church of Jesus because they belong to Jesus, but, but they're really not connected to this community. You need to call them and just connect, just to love them, just for them then do it. Maybe give them a call this afternoon. Or maybe there's someone that you know in this community or within the circle of the Christian church throughout the city, and they just need you to spend some extra time caring for them. Who is that person in your sphere of influence that you can reach out and love today deeply from the heart? Here's the second thing we need to do. It's a shorter point, but it's a critical one. Jesus does not say, and on this rock, you will build my church. Or, I will build your church. Or, you will build your church. No, Jesus says, I will build my church. The difference between those options is massive, but often mistaken. See, Jesus has been building his church. He will continue to do so. The gates of Hades 
Hell and death itself will not stand against it. Jesus will build his church. Death itself was overcome by Jesus through his resurrection. So it cannot have a hold over what Jesus is doing. Jesus himself will conquer death. The whole foundation of the church is built on his victory over death. So Jesus says, I will build my church. Not even death can overcome it. And that's what history has really shown. From this little band of frightened followers gathered in an upstairs room, the Holy Spirit comes on these people, and when the Holy Spirit comes, they are transformed into a a, a community of fearless witness to Jesus in their world. They throw open the doors, and Peter gets to be the mouthpiece that begins to share that Jesus is the saving one, and everyone who trusts in him will have an eternity and life, even beginning now with God. Peter will get to lead so many to experience the joy that comes through knowing Jesus. And this little Jesus movement begins to expand and grow, and it's still growing. Let me read you a line from the book, The Kingdom Unleashed. Christianity is spreading faster now than any time in human history. This is the most exciting time in history for the church right now. The writers say if that statement surprises you, it means that you probably live in the global north where Christianity is at best holding its own, but Christianity is exploding in the global south. They go on to share some of the numbers. Let me give you a sample. There were 9 million Christians in Africa in 1900. By 2000, there were 335 million. That's 37 times as many with most growth occurring since the 1960s. In China, it's estimated that 10,000 people per day become Christ followers, even amidst incredible persecution of the church. Even by conservative estimates, estimates, Christianity has grown 4,300% in the last 50 years. The church in Iran is exploding right now. You say, Iran? What are you talking about? Yes, in Iran. People are coming to Christ in droves right now. Go just check the news. Even liberal news stations will be reporting this. It's incredible what God is doing. Jesus says, I will build my church, and and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the most exciting time in the world, in history, for the church. Are you on board? Are you a part of what God is doing to bring apart his kingdom through the Christ community? Sure. Jesus says, I'll build my church. And boy, he has not disappointed on that promise. Here's what it means for us. We rest secure in what Jesus has done and will do. As his people, we don't have to sweat as though the health and vitality of the church global rests on us alone. Oh, we have our role to play, of course. We must stay faithful to Jesus or we cut ourselves out from that community. We either are a part of what he's doing or we are not, but Jesus will do what he's doing, and it is beautiful, and it is so good, and we are a part of it. So Jesus is building his church. The question is, are you in? Are we seeing yes to being a part of his community, to participating in what he's doing in our city too? God is at work in hearts, in your neighbor's hearts. He's already out ahead of you. You think, well, I haven't shared the gospel with him yet. Guess what? The Holy Spirit is already working in your neighbor's hearts. Begin to pray for your neighbors. Begin to ask God for opportunities to share this good news with them. Because God is at work. Are you in? 
we have this incredible opportunity. The reason why we're going to three services, you say, well, no, there's still a few chairs in this room. Yeah, there are. And at times in our, in our um, life together over the year, there aren't really. <laughs> we kind of hit the full every now and again. But simply out of a heart for wanting this whole community and city to know Jesus and to find belonging in a community, that's what we're doing. That's the opportunity we're trying to create, but it's not us creating it. That's what I'm trying to say. This is what Jesus is doing. Are we on board? That's our question. All right, I've gone too long on that point. I said it was going to be short. It's not because it's so exciting. Ha. Jesus really is the long-awaited king. And finally, Jesus' disciples understand that much. But what kind of king and what kind of kingdom? Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Yes, Messiah, they got that much. But no, Jesus, that can't be it. Messiah means political ruler right now. Set up the kingdom, kick out the Romans. Death, a dying king? Look at verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. He says, Lord, never, never, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Jesus has already heard this kind of language. When he was tested in the desert by Satan, God's enemy, his enemy, your enemy, what did he hear? Satan saying, take the easy way out. Not death. That's not, that's not what you need to do. And Jesus has heard this before. And so he addresses it in Peter and says, get behind me. The only way to extinguish the power of Hades and death and hell and evil is to exhaust it in my own body on the cross. I'm going to deal justly with sin and make the way. Jesus knows it's only going to come through his death and then his victory over death. Here's the irony, of course. Jesus has just called Simon, Peter, rock, foundation. I'm going to build my rock, uh, my church on this rock. And then what is Peter? In the next moment, the next breath, the first thing he does with these keys is he becomes a stumbling block, a rock to trip over. There's a whole lot in Peter and the others that they still need to learn about the king and his kingdom. We might need to learn it too. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So the very thing I was just telling you about that's going to happen to me is going to happen to you. For some of those, it would be literal death. And it still is for many Christians. These places where the church is growing like it is, uh, Christian people are suffering deeply and some of them being killed for their faith. So literally, these disciples will take up a cross. Peter himself, tradition tells us, was also crucified. Being my disciple means following my way of life, and that way of life may also lead to your death too. And it really did. He goes on. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone exchange for their soul? Give in exchange for the soul, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he'll reward each person according to what they've done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Uh, as an aside, that last bit there, um, I'm not going to preach on that today, but I wrote a note on it because I thought it was really important and kind of confusing. So it's on the back side of your bulletin. Don't read it now, but when you go home, if you're wondering about that, that's what it's there for. I can just hear it now. All the papers flip over. You're not listening to me anymore. Okay. Uh, this dying to self peace for the first followers was literally true for many of them, but is also true in this sense. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. He's saying, you deny yourself in order to get on my page. All of us will need to die to self-interest if we're actually going to follow this king. And now self-denial, that might sound a little bit like a life of drudgery, but can I say, to give up ourselves and our agenda for the sake of loving God and others, we were made for that. We become who we were made to be when we do it. I become, when I give myself back to following Jesus, the person I, I've always been made to be and actually I want to be. See, what do I lose really? Life inside the cage of my own self-centeredness? To me, that's well worth losing. I had a good chat with a friend of mine uh, over the church camp weekend, and we touched on this subject. In the course of that conversation, my mind jumped to uh, something that C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm of all creation and of all being. Really? Yeah, here's why. He goes on. For the eternal word, speaking of Jesus, gives himself in mortal sacrifice. He's talking about the cross there. And that not only on Calvary. For when he was crucified in Calvary, he did in that wild weather of his outlying provinces, talking about on earth, what he has done at home in glory and in gladness. What does Lewis mean? He's talking about the dynamics of love within the triune Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in love relationship for all of eternity, giving to the other and the other to the other and on and on and on, loving each other by laying themselves down for all of eternity. So listen to how he puts it next. From before the foundation of the world, Christ surrenders, he's speaking about himself here, begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. And as the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son. See, at the very heart of reality, the whole cosmos was created by and for this God who is in very nature love. And that's how it comes down for us as well. Listen to his conclusion. From the highest to the lowest self, your life, my life, exists to be abdicated, given up. And by that abdication becomes the more truly self to be thereupon yet the more abdicated and so on forever. This is a, a giving up of myself for the sake of others, for the sake of love, for the sake of God. This is not a law which we can escape. What is outside the system of self-giving is simply and solely hell. That fierce imprisonment in the self. Self-giving is absolute reality. It is. I believe it. And it's the reality of how Jesus lays down his life so we can be forgiven, made whole again. That's what ultimately gives us the rest, the security, and the motive to love others too. We love and obey Jesus not to earn new life, 
but because he has loved us all the way to the grave and back and freely offers us life. And when we take that life into us, we are made to be a people who can and actually want to live out that same pattern of life. Jesus says this is the way to real life, and it is. It's the only way. Try and keep your life for yourself, you'll lose it. Live for me and this way of self-giving, and you will find real life, whole life. And let's celebrate that life now as we come to the table.